0: Thank you very much uh, for coming. I'm uh, Andrew Robinson, the chairman.
1: My job will be to get you through the next hour and a half. Um, The reason I think I've been invited to chair is because for about the last 17 years I've been very actively involved in trying to provide a way for the poor people who are suffering from market failure to have access to affordable credit, particularly those living in very disadvantaged urban areas. And I have sort of come to believe that it is only by the transformations that we can effect on the structures and the practices which maintain our own affluent comfort that will result in any transformation of the conditions of all. in a way that requires people, whether they're in the public sector, the private sector, the voluntary and community sector, within the faith sector, to be able to see or imagine what is not yet, uh, but could be. And I think we have three speakers tonight who, in different ways, have seen that something's not right and should be uh, done about it. What we're going to do, and I'm asking you to play along with me. Um, I'm going to go to the second row. Uh, Gentleman with the glasses, who I'm looking at right there. I'm wondering if you and the the people on your right and left would be willing to play along with me. Um, We are going to give each speaker 15 minutes of time. Now, when I spoke here, there were four panellists. They were each given 12 minutes, and they each took 20, including me. I'm going to give power to the people, you all. And so I'm going to do this. Give you a block. Give you a yellow card, uh, <laughs> and what's going to happen here is when each speaker gets up, the gentleman with the clock, your name is, is going to start counting 15 minutes. When you get to 14, you nudge the guy with the yellow card, your name is, Tom, Tom. and Tom's job, his only job, once nudged, is to put the yellow card up. That is a signal to us all that there's one minute to go, so that's 14 minutes of speaking time, and it will advise the speaker that they have one minute to go. Your name? Peter. Peter. Peter, you have the red card. When 15 minutes on the clock is up, you nudge Peter, Peter will put the red card up, and the speaker will know that he has to stop. Now, when the red card goes up, what you all have to do is start clapping. <laughs> okay? Now, Let's just pretend. Blah, 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 14 minutes, what are you gonna do? Blah, 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 blah 15 minutes. Now it's very un-English and not polite at all, but will allow you to be sure that you'll have a good discussion after. So even if any of these guys are in mid-sentence, the red card goes up. Don't wait for the end of the paragraph or the end of the sentence, just up goes the card at 15 minutes. Right. the batting order is Catherine, then Edward, and then Ben, um, I'll introduce them each in turn. Catherine is the Chief Executive of Fair Pensions. I've known her for many years. I've met her first when she was the director of something called, I wrote down West London Citizens, but I thought it was East.
2: It uh, was Southern and East, went West.
1: Okay. Um, and uh, uh, just, just what could I tell you that you don't know about her, so in Googling her today, I discovered three things. One is that she is a supposed to be a rising star of corporate governance, according to Yale University's uh, Millstein Center. She was awarded that this year. Um, she was also awarded this year to be one of the top 10 women in pensions by investment in pensions Europe. that was also this year. Now to be the top 10 women in pensions the year before. She was actually one of the fifty most influential people in pensions, according to Pensions Investment in twenty ten. So I don't know if that is up the league table or down. Catherine, over to you. You've got fifteen minutes.
2: Okay. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Andrew, and thank you very much to the St Paul's Institute and the uh, Church Investors Group for the invitation. Uh, uh, Fair pensions is a non-governmental organization that is trying to hold accountable big investors for what happens downstream uh, with the money they invest. Um, So we run the campaign for responsible investment and I guess our our analysis is that investors are hugely powerful actors but often they're quite hidden uh, from view and actually they're not subject to all that much scrutiny. by civil society organisations so we're trying to fill that little gap and we're actually trying to expand the number of people that um, help us out with that. Uh, Although our name suggests pensions uh, and of course we do uh, focus a huge amount of our attention on pension funds because they're vast economic actors and their success is incredibly important to um, our well-being in old age, all of us. But actually we're working with a lot more um, institutional investors, we're working a lot now with faith investors and charity investors Um, and in our experience of course those smaller investors are much more on the case uh, when it comes to responsible investment and I think that proves that size isn't everything. Uh, It's really about the questions you ask as an investor, about the opportunities you take, about the research you do into the issues uh, where you are. In directly making an impact on the world as an investor um, the research you do about who's who in the companies you invest in and how do you engage them effectively in a dialogue um, it's about the time you put in so i really feel that and, and the, the campaign i'm going to talk about the low wage the living wage work we're doing with investors is really proving that nimble little investors like those represented in the room, are seriously making an impact on corporate behaviour in a very positive and exciting way. So size isn't everything, but we mustn't give up on those big, huge, giant pension funds and the vast asset management firms and the the, uh, insurance companies. Um, They have responsibilities that are commensurate with their size, and so that's what we will carry on doing, uh, hopefully with your help. I actually think there's something very interesting afoot amongst charity investors, foundations in particular. I think for a long time, foundations, most of them, have sat slightly on the sidelines when it came to um, shareholder activism, shareholder engagement, responsible investment. Uh, Some of them have done some screening, but really we're beginning to see something afoot where I think a lot more foundation investors are saying, these assets of ours, are an opportunity to open dialogue with companies about things that really matter to our mission, to our charitable purpose. How do we equip ourselves in that domain? And, and the work I'm going to talk about, the Living Wage Work, has seen a number of charitable foundations for the first time become involved in a collaborative investor initiative, one that is really making some striking progress and I hope that that is leading to uh, a re-evaluation in the foundation world of the importance of being responsible owner of your shares in particular. So uh, this work to mainstream responsible investment um, is only as good as uh, the kind of results that we deliver. So uh, we prove our case for responsible investment on the basis of action and results and we've, been, we've had a very active year. Uh, uh, And I'm going to present the work in progress on the living wage um, engagement with FTSE 100 companies. It really is work in progress. We're just entering into AGM season at the moment, and we anticipate that uh, through a lot of activity through AGM season, we're going to keep this issue really quite high up the corporate agenda. And I hope in in another year's time we'll have yet further really good results to report. Um, But just to come back to the origins of the Living Wage Movement, because I think it is a movement, it's involving all sorts of different um, stakeholders and social partners and uh, trade unions, obviously, um, charities, but the the people who really got this movement kicked off in 2001 were people of faith very much, Um, people uh, of faith in East London who observed the huge detriment to community life and sustainable family life in particular uh, created by poverty pay. And I was involved back in those days uh, in as a community organizer, and it's been quite interesting to uh, transition from being a community organizer to being a sort of organizer in the investment sphere, but really based on the same principles of people uh, who have either of faith or conviction of some sort, uh, beginning to exercise their muscles, um, their political, um, investor, um, ethical muscles. Um, So back in 2001, when the Living Wage campaign really got started, um, a number of Roman Catholic sisters uh, took the collection money from uh, a service one Sunday, and penny by penny, they paid it in HSBC bank in a manner that, completely snarled up action uh, and, and, and commercial activity um, on Oxford Street at one Um, Memorable Friday afternoon. And it got a great big picture of those sisters in the Financial Times and helped to open a dialogue with HSBC all those years ago. And it was Reverend Simon Mason and Reverend Agnes Ritchie, two Anglican ministers in a small and very poor parish in Plasto, East London, who hosted a meeting with Sir John Bond where the case was made, uh, the moral case. and and the economic case, but we were just fumbling our way towards it in those days. Now we have a really good business uh, case for living wage uh, standards, but fumbling our way towards that business case, but very strong on the the moral case, um, presented to Sir John Bond, who was then the chairman of the bank. And it was a a Methodist minister, Paul Regan, who sort of chaired that uh, collection of people of faith and community groups that got this started. So... Ten years of action had produced some startling results and some really impressive victories for the living Wage campaign, but there was a sense that it hadn't really penetrated deep into the economy in the way that it potentially could. So enter the investors, powerful economic actors with shareholdings in all the major companies traded on the London Stock Exchange, who we felt could bring an extra dimension to bear on the living wage work, which had established the possibility of putting these moral uh, wage flaws into um, the uh, the kind of wage spectrum of of these big companies. Um, So May of last year, uh, 21 investors, including a number of people in the room, um, uh, faith investors, uh, endowed trusts, a number of pension funds, wrote jointly to the chief executives of the FTSE 100 companies, urging them on the basis of a business case and an ethical case to adopt living wage standards into their UK operations. And those letters resulted in a really interesting series of dialogue with um, major companies. We've talked to Vodafone, HSBC, GlaxoSmithKline, Legal & General, Royal RSA insurers, land securities, Unilever, Burberry, Whitbread, uh, the the list goes on Uh, and these were companies that had not really engaged with the living wage work until they began to hear from their shareholders. Uh, The other dimension was a series of plucky people that went to the annual general meetings of uh, of these companies and said, Hello, I'm a shareholder. I'm seeking, you know, good long-term returns from you as a company, but I would like to see those returns predicated on a living wage for everyone that works uh, in your buildings. And there's nothing like getting face-to-face with the chief executive, chairman, and all the non-executive directors, which the AGM gives you a fantastic opportunity to do uh, to wake them up, particularly the non-execs, who one feels sometimes don't get these sort of issues filtering onto the board papers that they receive in their big, hefty packs. I imagine they get big, hefty packs, but that living wage hadn't been an agenda item. So very useful to um, speak at the annual general meetings. And we have made some really startling progress. Uh, About half of the companies I named there have committed fully uh, to adopting living wage standards, not just in London, where the campaign has been strong, but UK-wide. And I think it's evidence that investors can bring something very special to these social justice uh, movements living wage going for 10 years making headway but now with you investors on board something is really really stirring that's much more significant and we're getting onto the uh, radar screen of really the top people and companies which is of course what's needed so, just a word about a couple of other things that are going on uh, at Fair Pensions. We are beginning some work with Christian Aid to uh, raise a- awareness and, and ask companies questions about the transparency of their tax arrangements. And uh, that's, um, we had our first question at BP. Um, BP's AGM was last week and uh, there was a question on that and actually the company enormously receptive. And doing kind of better uh, than some uh, on this issue of tax justice and tax transparency than other companies. But um, some way to go uh, in terms of really giving a full picture of how it pays tax in all the different countries where it has operations. Uh, we're also doing work on um, executive pay. And I brought with me, Andrew was kind enough to mention, um, a investor briefing for charity trustees um, charity and, and, and faith trustees, I guess, um, on executive remuneration. Hopefully, really quite a handy little guide to helping you um, put some questions to your fund managers about how your votes are being cast this year uh, on executive pay. Um, and some work looking at uh, Shell's operations in the Niger Delta and encouraging Shell uh, to uh, adopt the recommendations of the UNEP uh, uh investigation into its impact and the impact of other companies on human rights in the Niger Delta. So, different um, projects going on, but we really are forging ahead with this living wage work. We really do need your help. Uh, we need more investors because there are some companies that are still quite deaf to the call for living wages. And there is nothing more important than hearing from those who own the companies. Uh, I, have had a number of really interesting meetings this year with FTSE companies where we've had um, trustees of of charitable trusts and faith communities sitting face to face with those uh, company executives and it's very often they want to hear uh, from investors uh, a moral case or my experience is they hear from so many investors just make me profits instantly. And what they want is investors that speak up, who say, of course we want uh, wealth creation. We need it in order to fulfill our fiduciary obligations as as charity investors. But we want you to do that um, in a way that doesn't uh, neglect uh, those who are at the bottom of the corporate pile, if you like. And hearing from people directly, hearing from you as shareholders, does, in my experience, create a certain sort of hard to put your fingers around it exactly, but a sort of magic of uh, engaging with those um, corporate leaders. They, they do need to hear from you, and um, I hope that in another year, we'll have more progress to report on the FTSE 100. Um, so just to come back to what uh, Andrew was saying, in terms of Margaret Ackwood, it is time to come out of the shadows for the charity and faith investors, and hopefully join in the next stage of this work on living wages. Thank you.
1: Very impressive and disciplined. No yellow or red cards. So we'll start the clock at, at zero again. Um, one of the uh, Catherine reminds me um, of uh, of a poem that uh, was written by a Catholic sister. Um, uh, a lot of the Organizations that Ben will talk about at the end uh, uh, in America were started by nuns who withdrew their money from uh, conventional, traditional uh, investment vehicles where they discovered to their horror that some of the things that were being invested in weren't kind of where they thought they should be. And one of the uh, sisters uh that uh, I met early on in my career about 15 years ago uh, was very involved in a microfinance fund in Ireland called the Credo Fund and on their brochure they uh, have a poem which is a segue into Edward uh, I will read it to you it's called A Thought. Often I wonder how it would be if God had money, would he bury it under the apple tree in the garden or or put it in the bank to let it work for him and just sit back because his future and safety was assured. This was 15 years ago. Or would he just spend it on his elementary needs and share the rest with the poor and human rights movements? Or on reforming forces taking part in the great struggle for justice and peace? but God has no money at all. He gave it to you and me, and what do we do with our money?" And I thought it was very simple, but quite profound. It requires action of individuals, and maybe, I don't know, Ben, whether you're going to talk about Move Your Money campaign at all in your talk, but you might want to do so now. Edward Uh, Mason is the Secretary to the Ethical Investment Advisory Group for the Church Commissioners for England and he's also managing the business of that uh, group and also the uh, actual practice relating to the Church of England Pensions Board and I met him about three years ago when he took on uh, this role. Um, I googled him and I discovered that's for about three years ago, three and a bit years, For four years before that, he was, this is a really interesting guy, Um, he was the head of the London office for an NGO called Independent Diplomat. And if you look at the type of places he has, I guess, been and advised, uh, we're talking Croatia, Kosovo, Somaliland, the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, and most interesting, because I didn't know this place existed, the Polisario Front of Western Sahara. Hands up, whoever knew what that was. Very impressive. (laughs) Um, And that was for four years, and before that, Edwards had about 15 years in the diplomatic service um, uh, for the Foreign Commonwealth Office, um, serving in places such as Zagreb, Oslo, and before that, uh, he had desk office roles covering Ireland, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Malawi, and in a world of increasing global investment. I think a very interesting and uh, diplomatic um, set of experiences for him to share. Clock starts now.
3: <laughs> Get up there quickly. Th- thank you very much, uh, Andrew, for that kind introduction. Um, so I'm Edward Mason, the Secretary of the Church of England's Ethical Investment Advisory Group. What I'm going to do is just speak for uh, between 10 and 15 minutes, so I hope not to come too close to the yellow card. Uh, I'm going to introduce the Ethical Investment Advisory Group and speak about how we approach another issue of financial marginalisation, which is high-cost lending, and explain the reasoning behind our policy in this area, but I'm really looking forward to the discussion and questions that we can have at the end. So to introduce the Ethical Investment Advisory Group, it's an independent body which advises the Church of England's three national investing bodies. So that's the Church Commissioners, the Church of England's endowment, uh, which also carries some of the historic pension liabilities of the Church of England. The second investing body is the Church of England Pensions Board, uh, and then we also have the CBF, Church of England Funds, which are a suite of funds for individual parts of the Church that are managed by CCLA Investment Management. So the Ethical Investment Advisory Group provides independent, impartial advice on ethical investment policy and practice to these three institutional investors uh, who are asset owners of the Church of England's institutional investment money. The Ethical Investment Advisory Group Secretariat, of which I'm the head, also supports the investing bodies with their ethical investment practice, and in particular talking to the businesses in which we own shares, very much in the vein that Catherine was describing when she was talking. No doubt many of you will be familiar with, with one aspect of, of Church of England, ethical investment, which is uh, the companies that, that we don't invest in, the areas of a business in which we uh, seek not to, to put our money. Uh, and you'll be familiar with many of the investment areas that we avoid, areas like tobacco, pornography, armaments, uh, gambling and alcohol. But you may be uh, less familiar uh, or, or may not realise that we have an ethical investment policy relating to high interest rate lending uh, as well. It's an area that not many ethical investors uh, and and certainly responsible investors uh, in the mainstream uh, have looked at. But we think it's it's hugely important and it's really great to have the opportunity to talk about it uh, here tonight. So we've had a policy on high interest rate lending for some time now uh, over ten years back in uh, 2001 uh, when Bishop Peter Selby here, who's, who's in the audience, was, was on the Ethical Investment Advisory Group. Uh, concern was was growing on the group about uh, doorstep lending in particular, which is the, the practice of uh, small unsecured loans, normally between about £100 and £500, pounds, being advanced to creditors on their doorsteps by uh, agents uh, and the money's paid back in the course of uh, about a year uh, and interest rates typically are uh, in, in excess of 250 uh, percent a year when expressed in uh, annual percentage rate terms. So I think if you were to borrow uh, say 300 pounds over a year you'd end up uh, paying back something like uh, 550 pounds. <coughs> so this was this was the first time that we we looked at this area and the Ethical Investment Advisory Group decided at that time to advise the national investing bodies of the church to avoid investment in companies practising doorstep lending in the UK. Recently we've had a, a wider look at the policy though because we're, we're very conscious now that the national investing bodies of the church have global investment portfolios, so they don't just invest in the UK. So we wanted to do justice to this issue on a global basis. And we also wanted to ensure that we captured other high interest rate lending practices besides weekly collected home credit. And so last year we adopted a policy uh, whereby The investing bodies of the church uh, are now advised uh, to avoid investment in payday lending as well uh, and also pawnbroking businesses. This very much captures the fact that the investing bodies hold US investments now where payday lending uh, is very prevalent and it's also a practice that we're seeing coming to the UK a lot more in part because regulation has actually got tighter in the US and also uh, with the recession. Uh, businesses see more opportunities in this area in the UK. So we now have a policy which all the investing bodies have accepted that they don't uh, place their investments, uh, they don't invest in the shares of companies who practice high interest rate lending in any form uh, anywhere uh, in the world, embracing uh, doorstep lending, uh, payday lending and, and pawnbroker lending. So I just wanted to talk about why why we've done this and why we think this is an important area for us as church investors. We're we're very keen that all our policies should be theologically grounded and that means that they're grounded uh, in the scriptures, they're grounded in the practice of the church over the ages and very importantly that they're grounded in the views of people in the Church of England today who are the beneficiaries of the investing bodies funds, and that means people uh, within the Church, clergymen and and lay workers who are saving for their pensions, and ordinary members of the Church of England who are benefiting from the Church Commissioner's money uh, which supports the work of, in particular, uh, poorer parishes around the country. So first of all, if we we looked at the Scriptures, um, I'm sure you'll all be very familiar with the Old Testament. Pronouncements on, on usury uh, and the importance of avoiding uh, charging interest to the poor. And, and some of the words in the Bible actually you know, do, do, do bear looking at and, and very much resonate uh, today in, in current circumstances. We looked at, at uh, passages in Exodus and Leviticus. If you look at Exodus, it talks about if, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. And we also looked at, at the New Testament as well, uh, where there's less explicit men- mention of the, the practice of, uh, of, of lending and borrowing. But uh, very much from, from Jesus, a sympathetic understanding of debt-induced hardship, uh, obviously a call for generosity in all of his teaching. Uh, and he notably urged his disciples to lend without expecting anything in return. We then looked at the the practice of the church down the ages, and this is a, an issue on which the church has taken a very a very strong stance right from uh, the the earliest days of the church, condemning the lending of money at interest. Uh, and if you go back to the early Middle Ages, to the the twelfth century, uh, the Third Lateran Council banned usurers from receiving communion or a Christian burial. So that's um, how how strong this this policy has been through the the practice of the church uh, down the ages. And many Christian states in the Middle Ages maintained bans on lending money at interest. Now clearly things have have changed since then, since biblical times and since the Middle Ages Uh, and there was a rethinking in the early modern period with theologians like John Calvin who recognized that uh, the business environment was changing, uh, that times were were different from biblical times and that there could be a role for lending money including at modest rates of interest uh, and he was thinking particularly in the area of business uh, where you could have uh, transactions uh, that made good business sense and benefited both parties. It wasn't an area of, of exploitation but of, of mutual benefit. But Calvin remained very clear that lending uh, at interest to the poor was not appropriate. And I think we're in a, a similar position in the Church of England today uh, when, we, uh, when we look at the situation on lending money at interest. The Church obviously recognises that we live in, in, different, in a different economic system from biblical times in which lending and borrowing can contribute to the common good when exercised responsibly. Lending money to businesses enables them to grow faster than if they were to rely on their own capital. Lending money to individuals enables them to buy houses, uh, fund their education, buy a car or whatever, uh, without having to uh, save up for years and years. It enables them to to have access to these products um, at the time when they need them in their lives. But the the, the, the welcome for lending is very much qualified, there is widespread concern in the church about the extent of credit in the economy and indebtedness and we had a very interesting debate in General Synod uh, early in 2009 in the wake of the financial crisis and the Ethical Investment Advisory Group was very conscious of the, the views that were expressed in that debate about debt getting out of hand. The particular concern is about credit provision to poorer members of society. It's been a consistent theme of church thinking uh, and a desire that this kind of lending needs to be conducted with the the greatest sensitivity. And we looked at the kind of activities that people in the church are involved in through organisations like um, Church Action on Poverty or Christians Against Poverty, the latter organisation which is involved in in debt counselling, for example. And people in the church uh, up and down the country have first-hand experience of, of the harm that overindebtedness can cause. Uh, they see people who are, who are struggling uh, with, with multiple debts, with rolled over debts, who are using loans to pay for, for food uh, and bills. And this is not just anecdotal evidence, it's, it's evidence that's backed up through research as well. We looked at academic papers, for example a a recent one by the University of of Bristol on um, modern pawnbroking. So many members of the Church of England are supportive of alternatives to commercial high interest rate lending and particularly supportive of of credit unions and community development financial institutions of the kind which we're we're going to hear about next. So based on on, on a look at uh, the scriptures, the practice of the church down the ages, views in the contemporary Church of England, the Ethical Investment Advisory Group was clear that companies specialising in high interest rate lending were not appropriate uh, investments for the Church of England national investing bodies. And the particular concerns were around the rates of interest charged, the the burden of interest on the the borrower, and the risk of exploitation of people in uh, very uh, jeopardous uh, circumstances or with low financial literacy. I wanted to stress though that this wasn't necessarily uh, an easy or straightforward policy to come up with. We were very conscious and and trustees of the investee bodies uh, were very conscious of the importance of access to finance for all members of the community including the financially uh, marginalised. We were also conscious of the risk of uh, loan sharks, Um, so it's it's certainly not a straightforward issue and this is one of the reasons why, as with most of our policies, we do build in engagement with business as part of our approach. We want to have a positive impact, it's not just about uh, what we avoid but also how we can have an impact uh, through our role as an investor. So as part of our engagement activities with business, we do talk to mainstream banks and one of the things that we talk to them about is the importance of access to finance for the financially (laughs) marginalised and we encourage them to support credit unions and community development finance institutions, in particular by making their finance available to them. We do also talk to uh, some of the high interest rate lending companies, again it's part of our practice we do talk to companies that we don't invest in as well as ones uh, that we do. We want to make sure that we, we understand their businesses and when we make a recommendation to exclude companies from investment uh, we do so on the basis of, of, of knowledge. and. We're keen to use our voice and the, the potential investment that we can make as a lever for change and encouraging more responsible practice. So we've had some very encouraging conversations there and that's something that we will, we will continue to do. So just to wrap up, as I've, as I've seen my yellow card, I said I would avoid it um, and I failed. Um, an area that we've, we've spent a lot of time looking at. Uh, we're concerned about, we're very pleased uh, to have the opportunity to talk about it at events like this, and we're very pleased that it's rising up the political agenda, uh, that the Office of Fair Trade is looking at things like payday lending, that the Department for Business and Innovation and Skills is onto it. Uh, sadly, Stella Creasy couldn't be here tonight, but the political effort that she's bringing to bear, again, is, is very welcome to shine a light on this area. I look forward to the discussion later on.
1: Great, thank you very much. It's not a bad thing to get the yellow card and the red card at all. In fact, I would have been very happy if you to run right up to the applause, both of you. Um, uh, the third speaker tonight is uh, Ben Hughes, who's the, chief execu- the new chief executive of the Community Development Finance Association. Um, uh, the, if you go onto their website, it, it, it says that uh, the CDFA members provide loans and support to people who find it difficult to access finance from the commercial banks, and that is very polite and diplomatic. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to work for a bank, uh, two of them. Well, one got taken over by another. And um, the reality is I would describe the situation as one where there is a serious market failure for those that are on what the Americans would call low and moderate incomes. Um, Leo, where are you Leo, put your hand up. At the back. Leo is a trustee of a foundation that I'm involved in called the Len Kelly Chase Foundation, and um, we have invested in an organization providing credit to people in Wales that the banks won't lend to, and they've just provided us with an annual report, and it's one of Ben's members, And the annual report for this CDFI, Community Development Finance Institution, says that the average borrower is a woman. She's under 25. She has more than one or two children. And she's on benefit. And she uses the money to get by. And uh, rather than give off our surplus that is invested, which is, Leah, what is it, about 120 million quid? we have that generates a significant amount of money that we can give in grants every year, but we've decided to invest of our substance in these types of initiatives. And it's new, and it's challenging for the trustees, but it's quite clear to us that there is a market failure uh, in this area. And Ben sits on top of a trade association that that is trying through its membership to address the issue. I've known Ben for longer than I knew Catherine, so it's almost. 15, 16 years now. And uh, Ben is the new chief executive of the CDFA, only appointed in the last year. Before that, uh, Ben was the chief executive of an organization called BASAC, the British Association of Settlements and Social Action Centers. And for those of you that don't know much about the settlement movement, it dates back over 100 years to really Victorian times. And it has uh, its members, um, uh, led campaigns for education for all uh, for universal pensions for decent housing for the poor for healthcare for legal aid uh, and you know those were the days when posh people from Oxford and Cambridge used to go and live amongst the poor before they went off to rule the world uh, or go into industry in the 60s that's a settlement bit, the social action center movement developed where there was much more of an emphasis on what local people can do for themselves and uh, to empower themselves to get what they need out of society. Udo Reifner is a a writer, uh, an academic who looks at banking services and uh, he talks uh, in one of his uh, papers about how he doesn't blame the banks for the situation that we're now in. He blames society. And sitting beneath that comment, he, there is a, a reference to a paper which, if, if you are interested, I can give you uh, the, the the link to. It's called The Rules of Corporate Behavior by an unfortunately named gentleman called Jerry Mander. Um, and uh, in, in this uh, paper, which Basically, he lays out 11 rules to help you to understand why corporates do what they do. He says that the main factors that determine corporate behavior have far less to do with the people who work inside their corporate structures than uh, they do with the structure itself. The people inside corporations are simply following the legal and, quote, ethical, end quote, standards of corporate form. Profit comes first. Growth is a close second, amorality, not morality comes third, and there are quite a few more. There are eight more actually, those were three. To ask corporations to behave better by making growth and profit a lower priority or to act foremost in the interests of local communities, the environment or the workers, is like asking armies to give up guns. Managers who might personally like to develop more pro-social or pro-environmental policies are constrained. They cannot give such factors higher priorities than the bottom line, or they may find themselves out of a job. And having worked in a bank for most of my time here in the UK, trying to address this issue of financial exclusion, I can say that I totally identify with that description, as harsh as it is and many of Ben's members are trying to build a bridge between old-style philanthropy uh, and market-based responses to need.
4: Ben. I, see, I think even more frightening than the yellow or red card would be the sound of the bells above us somehow, chiming us out of time. Um, I will try and be quick because I think what would be good is to have the sort of dialogue and debate that, that others uh, have referred to, and indeed Andrew has already introduced me, CDFA and CDFIs, and it was a good, a good description, Andrew. I mean, what I'd scribbled down as a summary of what our 65 CDFI members who do operate across all four nations do is try to create wealth in every community, and particularly those that are underserved. That's the essence of our strapline as a support to our local members. Um, But I thought rather than stand here and sort of talk for 10 minutes about uh, what they do, I might just start by telling a short story about the sort of experience that one of our members in particular uh, has gone through recently. Gina is a vibrant, able, and motivated 29-year-old. She's also very entrepreneurial. Being a keen cook and magnetic people person, she'd often wondered about opening up a cafe. But like a lot of others, she's had it tough. A single parent, Gina's been on benefits for the bulk of her turbulent adult life. Thrown out by her mum at 15 with no education to speak of, she's been in and out of hostels. She's been prone to substance misuse, and along with it, a lifestyle that's resulted in periods of imprisonment. A consequence of this was the removal by social services of her adored six-year-old daughter last year. Funding this lifestyle got her into debt and she was forced to take out a £500 loan from a doorstep lender at an equivalent rate of 782% APR, which of course, realistically, she can never repay from her benefits. By fluke, her social worker knew of an organisation called Hackney Business Ventures, HBV, a CDFI in Hackney, East London, not so far from here but in an area facing extraordinary high levels of market failure. They offer affordable personal and micro-business loans. They also offer a range of financial literacy and business support services. Following a full financial review, Gina took out a personal loan of £600, at a rather more moderate 28% APR, with which she cleared, with the help of advocacy, the loan shark debt. This, combined with the ongoing support of HBV, gave her the confidence to look seriously at her long-standing cafe idea. So over the next nine months, HBV helped turn the dream into an investable business proposition which is no mean feat in terms of that direction of travel around financial literacy, kind of very basic numeracy skills that our members spend much of the time supporting their customers with. Having found premises, she took out a small business loan of two and a half thousand, an enormous amount for someone like her, at 24% APR, to cover essential equipment and refurbishment. Two years later, Both loans have been fully repaid. Gina's cafe is thriving. She's created four jobs, all of which have gone to local unskilled and long-term unemployed young people and is making a healthy profit. Much of which, of course, is being ploughed back into, as I've said, what's one of the poorest communities in, in the UK, in fact. And she's currently negotiating a further loan to open up another cafe. So, a success I'm sure all of us would agree. What they did is pretty similar to what our other 64 members do around the UK. In total CDFIs offered this type of service to about 23,000 ginas lending about 200 million pounds. So that's all fine then isn't it? Well no. It certainly isn't. The sheer scale of the challenge, the number of GINA's that are denied access to mainstream finance is massive. And I'm just going to use a couple of slides to try and (coughs) illustrate. If you look at the top line, this is the total market, the total market of people needing some kind of financial service. If you go down one, you look at those that actually applied for a loan. If you go down the next, 33%, 44%, and actually 38%, it tells you those that were unsuccessful. So if you go to the blue strip along the bottom, this tells you what in our estimate, and this is not based on anecdote, this is actually based on quite a lot of research that we've done. This is the, the, these are the financially excluded, quote-unquote. So if we accept that those are the financially excluded, to meet the needs of those that are excluded, to meet half that gap, the CDFI sector, CDFIs themselves, in terms of the SME markets, would have to be 123 times bigger four times bigger for the social enterprise market and 71 times bigger for the personal market. That's equivalent to £2,800,000,000 of SME investment, £585,000,000 for social enterprise and 590 pounds for personal. Pretty staggering figures. Or, to put it another way, it 's the equivalent of about one million seven hundred and fifty thousand genus, and that 's a lot of lives to change for the better. i 'll leave that up just as I conclude so we have to grow the community finance sector. Whether we can realistically grow it to that scale within any of our lifetimes, um, we, we really don't know. But in our bid to Grow It, we've developed this manifesto, which Andrew flagged up earlier on. There are some copies over there. And I guess what it seeks to do is outline a kind of route to growth, which really concentrates on two things. The first of all the first is capitalizing, because we need more money to be able to meet those green targets at the bottom. And that isn't just about traditional forms of investment from banks, from trusts and foundations and from government. Welcome and important those those are. I think importantly it's about, and Andrew mentioned the Move Your Money campaign, it's about new forms of making use of funds that are ready in particularly our poorest communities. And there is money there. There may not be huge amounts, but there is money. So things like getting people to take small amounts from an established bank and invest it in a credit union, encouraging people to come together through what we call crowdfunding, things like market invoicing, community land trust, these are all new forms of trying to harness wealth that does exist within local communities. And CDFIs are absolutely central to realizing that potential. The second <coughs> is about growing the market. And part of the reason why that middle line is the size that it is, of course, is to do with capital. It's also to do with the fact that not enough people know of the existence this is a viable alternative to mainstream the mainstream financial services sector we have to create a narrative that everybody can get behind our members investors and customers and we have to get a wider support base which is where people like you come in people who can invest even in small ways directly into cdfis we think that community finance is absolutely critical to the economic recovery of the UK. But I think almost more significantly, we also think, and if you refer back to Gina's story, that it's a very basic human right. Thank you.
1: So um, I think that we should all commiserate with Bishop Peter for not having... The opportunity to hold up the red card, um, uh, but that gives us just over a half an hour for uh, some discussion, um, points, responses to what you've heard. The the Margaret Atwood uh, quote, "The Shadow Side of Wealth," um, uh, was her subtitle. Uh, the subtitle of tonight's event, more optimistically, rather than just talking about the predicament that that uh, high interest rates and people living on low income have. A, our strapline tonight was the role of the mission-driven investor in achieving a better society. And there's lots of you in the room. And would be really interested to hear your, your take. Um, just from a CCLA point of view, um, we've signed up to the Living Wage Campaign. And in getting our house in order, uh, We discovered that the cleaners that were subcontracted in our building uh, weren't getting paid the London living wage, and the knock-on effect was we now pay a slightly higher bill, Uh, but we think it was the right thing to do, and uh, James Cora here, who's the secretary to the Church Investors Group, emailed me the other day, because we're moving in a month's time, our offices, to sort of, in a rather prickly way, say, and when we move are we still going to sign up to the London living wage? So our our facilities. People have to check that out. Um, so there are knock-on effects if you do want to sign up to stuff, if you really want to make a difference. So if you have signed up to the Living Wedge, it'd be interesting to hear your stories about that kind of stuff. And um, over to you, really.
0: <laughs>
1: we don't. Can we just grab those three questions and give Stella the mic for a bit? Is that okay? Because she's been doing some well, fascinating I work. An Sorry. Some of the questions.
2: I, I do apologize. <laughs>
1: microphone. Give Stella a round of applause.
0: The MP for Walthamstow, North East London, God's Own Country as I like to call it. Um, I call it God's Own Country because Walthamstow originally means the word welcome. And we welcome everybody in Walthamstow, so we have every single community represented in Walthamstow, which is why both the Olympics is a deeply frightening and deeply exciting experience for us all at once, because I'm sure there'll be a number of fights about whose team has done better. Um, I'm so sorry that I wasn't able to be here at the start this evening, but I wanted to try and come and and take part, because um, for those of you who don't know, I have been campaigning within the British Parliament to secure for British consumers the same rights and the same protection that I believe consumers across the rest of the world have, particularly in relation to high-cost credit, uh, legal loan sharks, as I like to call them. The payday lenders, the white goods merchants, the high purchase agreements, the logbook loans that are slowly killing communities like mine in Walthamstow. Um, I have watched these firms grow and flourish uh, in the last couple of years in my local community and I've seen the impact that they're having now, not just in Walthamstow but across the country, and and I believe passionately that actually there are ways in which we can address the behaviours of these companies so that they become part of a solution to dealing with the credit problems that many of our communities have in Britain, rather than actually perpetuating some of those issues. Um, To give you a a sense of where those pressures might come, a lot of talk has happened in in my workplace, and I'm sure is in yours, about borrowing and about um, the level of, of debt that this country has. Actually, we're not talking very much about the level of debt that private households are taking on in this country. And it is estimated by 2015, so by the end of the Parliament that I'm part of, that Britons will owe over £2 trillion worth of debt in terms of their private debt. Now, we've always been a country that's comfortable with having personal debt, much more so than many other countries. We've all been comfortable with the idea of borrowing to fund goods such as housing or cars or even an education. But increasingly, what we're seeing is a different type of debt. And whereas in my kind of community, people were able to manage the debts that they were getting into, over the course of the last two or three years, we've seen a perfect storm as rising cost of living, wage freezes and unemployment have hit families. So they're simply finding there is just too much month at the end of their money now. We know that half of all households in this country do not earn enough in a month to cover their outgoings. That is why these companies, these legal loan sharks, are prospering in the UK and they are prospering spectacularly. Um, We know that now the majority of payday loans are taken out in this country for basics. These are people borrowing to cover the cost of feeding their families or paying their transport links. It's worth remembering in London alone, if you're on the minimum wage, you're paying out a third of your income on transport costs alone. It's just a very, very expensive city to live in. Now, if it were just about demand, that would be one thing, but one of the things I'm very conscious as well is about supply. These companies are actively coming to the UK and targeting the UK because we do not have the same level of protection for our consumers that they enjoy in most other countries, particularly in forms of capping the rates that these companies can charge. You would have seen the adverts on the Tube. You might have seen them on the buses as you go past. You might have thought you've misread where the decimal point is. It is completely legal in this country to charge 1,700%, 4,500%, or 16,000% as one company does for a payday loan. But the nature of this market is it's not fair for consumers. See, what these companies want to tell you, and and Wonga, are a particular favorite of mine, they want to tell you this is a new form of lending. This is what the Facebook generation want to borrow by. They think that people have a choice at the end of the month that when they borrow from Wonga, they will actively be disencouraged from rolling over their loans because they'll be able to pay the money back because of the fees that will you incur if you roll the loans over. This presumes that all those people who are finding that they can't make ends meet around the 20th of the month will somehow be able to make ends meet around the 29th or the 30th of the month. These loans are being rolled over and many of you will remember those horrible, sweaty afternoons in double maths talking about compound interest. That is the trap that people are getting into. We know that a third of payday loans in this country are now taken out to pay off other payday loans. I have constituents, in fact I have people across the country now contacting me who have regularly eight or nine payday loans as they've been sucked into this vortex of trying to pay off one loan by taking out another loan and still finding they just don't have the money to cover the costs that they have in the first place. These are the kinds of trends that we're trying to stop with the campaign that we've been running and that's particularly why I wanted to come here tonight because we have an opportunity again through legislation next week in the Financial Services Bill to make some progress. Now I might shock you by saying I'm not actually in favour of an interest rate cap. I know many people particularly within faith communities talk about usury laws and about just capping the rates of interest. I'm not in favour of an interest rate cap because the evidence that we have from other countries is that actually they're not very effective because these companies are easily able to get round them. They charge admin fees, they charge convenience fees, they offer, loan, they offer debtors multiple loans to try and get round them. I want to bring in a total cost cap. I want a cap beyond which the cost of a single loan will never roll beyond. And I believe because we've got a new financial conduct authority being proposed in the UK that the legislation will come through next week. We've got an opportunity to give that conduct authority the powers to cap the costs of credit in this country and start the ball rolling to get British consumers the same kind of protection that they have in many other countries in terms of capping the charges these companies can make. I absolutely believe this is part of a wider discussion we have to have in the UK about how we use credit, about the nature of credit in our country. It is not unusual, it's not um, by accident that our credit card rates have also gone up substantially over the last six or seven months, because companies are recognising that in this market, when you have that level of demand, there is money to be made. And the idea that, as this government keeps trying to tell me, the market will somehow recalibrate itself and that that recalibration will be in favour of the people that I represent, let alone the people across this country who are now struggling with those levels of debt, just simply doesn't strike up to me. If we were to bring in the same kind of caps that you have in other countries, I believe that the way in which people are borrowing could be managed. And it could be managed in a way that means that we don't have cheap credit in this country, we don't have expensive credit in this country, we have affordable forms of credit. Now part of that is also about the credit union movement and I noticed there a gentleman who was talking about innovation within the sector. I am extremely heartened by the way in which the credit union movement in the UK has responded to some of these crises. I work very closely with my own credit union in Waltham Forest. One of the credit unions I've seen in the Midlands is starting to bring out its own form of payday lending to recognise that need for short term credit. Another has started to put together its own version of Bright House to try and offer people white goods at an affordable price. But the reality in the UK is only 2% of our population uses credit unions. It will take a generation to be able to address that, for people to see credit union borrowing in the same light that they see these kind of companies. And when you have 16 of them in your high street, as I do in Walthamstow alone, indeed it's one of my favourite games now, driving around London, to trade off the number of betting shops versus the number of payday loan shops and see which is winning within our high streets. You can see the, the, per, the personal debt crisis that is coming to our country. I always say the most important thing to to recognise is the challenge that we've got. So I just want to finish by giving you one of my most favourite quotes I always give people about this. Because what the government keeps trying to tell me is that this can be managed, that the market will resolve itself, that actually what people need is greater knowledge about these costs. There's a great quote from a film. It is, it's all psychological. You yell barracuda, everybody says, what? You yell shark, you've got a panic on your hands. Well, as we leave our British communities to be the chum for the legal loan sharks, I think we need to start shouting shark. Because actually, when we know what will change this market, when we know what will protect our citizens, it is both financially irresponsible and morally reprehensible, as far as I'm concerned, to do nothing about it. I can't do anything on my own as one backbench opposition MP. But if you are prepared to talk to your MP and ask them to support that amendment next week in the Financial Services Bill, if you are prepared to go out in your communities and say, actually, there is a solution, and we can protect those thousands of people, the 4 million people in this country who are borrowing regularly through payday loans, the 1 million people who are putting their mortgages on their payday loans, the 7 million people who are putting their mortgages on their credit cards, then actually, we can change the terms of this debate and we can actually protect the communities who will be scarred by debt for a lifetime if we don't do anything about these companies. Thank you very much for listening.
1: And I thought she was just a really friendly <laughs> person who came late for our event. We still have 20 uh, minutes to chat. Um, this may ignite a few other issues. Um, Stella, just in case you missed some of the questions, we had one from uh, Edward uh, about crowdfunding and is that beginning to happen in a way that is focused on people who have difficulties in this area, the types of people you've talked about. We had one from a microfinance Fund 5 Talents, Tom who was asking about Technology and um, things that could be applied in this space, and we had a question about was it Bretton Woods and NGOs. NGOs. So feel free to jump in at any time, but I thought we could start with Ben. You're very uh, crowdfunding.
4: Um, yeah, I mean, we, it is. I think it is a new and stellar. It's very interesting to hear references to credit unions, but I'd say CDFIs, community development finance institutions, too, offer. Uh, some of those uh, alternatives to mainstream finance that are so important and that crowdfunding, yes, is, I think, an important element of rebalancing because, of course, what it means is it takes the pressure away from the dominance of the half-dozen or so key investors that are either banks or some of those organisations that Stella was just outlining. However, it's new, and I think one of the challenges around crowdfunding is there isn't locally often an obvious vessel, if you like, to hold the capital that ordinary people are putting in, either through 50p's or pounds, pound 50's, and they're very, very small amounts. And that's the role that CDFIs increasingly, potentially, with credit unions, are uh, likely to inhabit.
1: Catherine, do you want to have a go at any of those issues that were raised? Uh,
2: Not particularly, just to make the link between the two, really, which... between the issues of um, low pay and 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 sort of debt that people fall into is that of course uh, there are lots of people that are earning above a living wage who find themselves um, stretched and reaching for payday loans but it does disproportionately affect people who haven't got enough uh, to meet their basic needs and the the point of the living wage is that it's calculated as to what does it really cost to meet those basic needs and employers that require it or pay it um, are in this you know, very significant way helping people to avoid this kind of debt disaster. Now once you get into debt and you've got to make lots of repayments, a living wage isn't enough. That's why these, things, these issues are so important to kind of see um, together. Um, so just to make that link. But, but another little link which is I mean, it's fantastic. I think what the Church of England has done um, in disinvesting and making sure that it doesn't um, put its money into payday loans is pass that challenge over to other investors to look at this. And there are, of course, some major charitable uh, trusts (coughs) and other big investors who are still um, financing and investing um, in this industry that Stella has so dramatically described. (laughs) Um, uh, So... There are some really big challenges there, um, and I think ones that it's useful to air.
1: Thank you,
3: Edward. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on the point on innovation actually, and you know you alluded to it when you talked about market failure. I think there's, there's a real lack of innovation in this area of providing. Uh, credit to people who are um, financially marginalised, and you know we talked about Wonga as, as a company that has shown some kind of innovation in terms of how it markets itself and how it delivers itself. But in terms of kind of actually the cost of its service or, or competing on price, there hasn't been innovation. There isn't competition on price in this sector. It's it's who spends the most on uh, on on advertising, and people compete in terms of you know on convenience and speed and things like that. So there needs to be innovation in terms of bringing the cost down uh, of these products um, and you know we we are able to talk to one of the um, doorstep lending companies about areas like this about how they might encourage saving as well as borrowing you know all, I mean, all kinds of financial institutions, including ones that, that deal in high-cost credit, are finding problems of, of access to credit themselves, and that's an opportunity for innovation that they can actually, you know, take in savings from customers as well as as well as, uh, as, well as uh, offering loans. So there's definitely scope for innovation, there's scope for using direct debit payments more. I mean, I think it's 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 crazy that. Doorstep lending companies are relying on cash collection. Not all of their customers uh, have access to bank accounts, but some of them do. Some of them could visit um, uh, an office to make their payments rather than the cost of an agent coming around to see them. So I think there's definitely scope for innovation, and we really need to encourage that. And, you know, as Stella was saying, to, to try and get some of these players to be part of the solution as well as
4: part of the problem.
0: I just a couple of points I follow up on. I absolutely do not take the argument there is competition in this market. If you were to go and try and get a personal loan from a mainstream bank, the rates that you'd be charged would be broadly equivalent. Those rates I quoted—about 1,700%, four and a half thousand percent, sixteen thousand percent—are all for the same types of product. These companies are setting their rates because it is about market share. There is a window of opportunity for them, because, and they say this themselves. It's not me saying it. Because of the lax regulation in the UK and the demand. There's a wonderfully titled man called Peter Crooks, who is the chief executive of Providence, and he said because of the budgets, they would see a growth in their target market. In order to reach that target, they've got to get market share, particularly because the, the costs of initially setting up a customer are so high for them. But once they've got you, Because you have nobody else that you can borrow from, you're a cash cow for them, and that's where this comes from. That's why, frankly, I was horrified when I saw that the Wellcome Trust had given Wonga £73 million to expand their operations, and I wrote to them to ask them what on earth they were doing. It's why, frankly, I've been horrified that the Mayor of London took money from Wonga to advertise at New Year's Eve, and has now allowed them to spend £13 million on the buses that you see with alarming regularity with the Wonga adverts on them. But, frankly, these companies could be part of a solution. In other parts of the world where you have payday lending but it's capped, then it helps families manage their finances, and that is what I find so doubly frustrating about this. I'm not trying to put any of these companies out of business. I want a fairer deal for British consumers, because when families are struggling, when I see people coming into my surgeries who are about to lose their homes or cannot feed their children, so we are organising food banks in my local community, the idea that what we should be saying to them, as frankly some government MPs have said to me, we'll just spend less. It just doesn't stack up with their real lives, with the struggles that they're having. We have to help these families because that's how our economy will grow again and we'll get back into work. But if we help them into a debt they will never recover from, actually, our economy will suffer in the long term too. And it's, it's not just, as I say, the moral arguments here, it's the good financial arguments that it's so frustrating when you see what works in other parts of the, country, of the world and you don't see that operating here in the UK. Okay.
1: I think what we'll do given I mean, how are you guys feeling? Do you wanna end at quarter two? Do you wanna let it run an extra five minutes? What's the mood of the room? Hands up if you wanna just have another round of questions or you just wanna end with a little sweet response to this. So who wants to stay till about five to eight? And who's happy to break and network and chat earlier than that and stick to the quarter two? When do we
0: get cut? when do we get kicked
1: out? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. It's about it's about 50-50, So, Catherine's suggesting we stick to time. So that's what, we, <laughs> so that's what we shall do. And we will start with Catherine. We're down the table, and Catherine, will you finish picking and choosing from the pick okay. and mix here? Okay. Any final comments as well?
2: Not because this isn't fascinating, but I just I'm a great believer in sticking to time. Good. <laughs> um, so I'm going to just pick on the one question that was directed at me um, specifically, which is uh, what are the barriers to shareholder um, engagement and activism? Um, there's lots of them, so I mean, part of our mission at Fair Pensions is to em- empower individuals who hand over their pension savings in trust to often rather faceless bodies who supposedly look after it on their behalf. Um, we want people to have a lot more information available about what happens with their money. We just um, produced uh, some research this morning on the big insurance companies that provide pension products, and if you choose an ethical product with those companies, you um, you actually can't see what holdings they have on your behalf. What companies they're holding in the fund on your behalf? You can maybe, at best, get the top ten. You don't even, you know, you've, you've chosen that product because of its supposedly ethical characteristics, and you're in no position to judge what's in it or not. So, information is one big one, but the whole world of finance is frankly quite intimidating for ordinary people. There's an awful lot of jargon, and there's an awful lot of. Um, expertise and people being um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, keeping people out just through kind of almost cultural practice. And another little way we're trying to break that down is actually do trainings for people on, for example, how to go to a company AGM and have the courage to stand up and ask a question. The practicalities of how do you make sure that you've got the one share that you need in order to be able to go along. So. I think there are all sorts of ways that we can begin, small, small ways, to break down the barrier between people and their money, because when people reconnect with what's really happening to their money, I do think we will have a much more responsible form of capitalism. We need the wealth-generating power of capitalism, I believe. I'm sort of not advocating an alternative to that, but it needn't operate the way it does today. There's all sorts of barriers which I do think can be broken down. and. Um, you know, bit by bit through the kind of campaigns we're running like Living Wage where we're getting some real success, measurable success, makes a real difference to what people um, are living and, uh, and earning on. Those successes help to kind of build confidence in a bit of a movement. So that's the plan and I'd um, love to work with you on it if you'd like to come with us on that.
1: Catherine is shameless. Right, Edward. <laughs>
3: Uh, just a couple of things to pick up on. Uh, the question about the lack of publicity for ethical investment. Uh, I'd just point you in the direction of National Ethical Investment Week, which has been going a few years now, takes place every autumn in October. Uh, that's a way of kind of generating interest in ethical investment. Uh, and you can kind of you know, spread, spread the word about that. Um, Yeah, I mean, we, you know, obviously, Church of England doesn't, we, we, you know, we we don't have customers, as it were, but we try and use our, our kind of public role to to raise awareness of, um, of issues on the question of whether the Church of England um, invests in uh, CDFIs. Um, one of the church investing bodies has uh, investments in microfinance, um, uh, but there, there are no investments at the moment in CDFIs. Um, I, I, I wouldn't rule that out. Um, all I would say is that it's it, it is quite challenging for big institutional investors to make social impact investments. They're used to placing investment mandates of 100, 200 million pounds uh, in kind of areas and asset classes that they know well. It's very hard for them to make smaller investments. Um, in areas of investment that are, that are kind of new, that require heavy due diligence that they're not familiar with. What, what you tend to find in new areas is that high net worth individuals or, or individuals with more freedom in their investments uh, kind of are the first movers in these areas and hopefully they, they kind of generate enough momentum so that then bigger uh, investment products are available to institutional investors. Um, those are the ones I want to pick up
4: Oh, this is hurting me. There's so much I want to say. I know, um, yeah. Ben, two very quick points. I wanted to come back on the schools plus plus point that you flagged, which I think is very much about the growing the market thing that I was talking about and raising public consciousness, really, around the benefits and the ease with which some of this kind of investment can take place. You talked about the sort of social impact or the... the what we would describe as the metrics there is a lot of work being done but i think we should all put our hands up to say yes we are not working as a sector in a way that is sufficiently coordinated and integrated to really create a movement which is i think what we're really talking about so i think you're right and more people need to be saying that to all of us to get us to work better as a, as, a, as a body, although well, I think there is some stuff going on. Linked to that, I want to come back to your, what I think this is a point about the law. Two very quick things, I know this wasn't exactly what you said, but I've, in terms of that growing the market, there are two fundamental issues. One of them is tax relief, That, and I was woefully depressed in the budget that we just had, because there was absolutely nothing by way of increasing (coughs) tax benefits that will encourage the flow of funds into the sorts of communities that we're talking about here. The Community Investment Tax Relief, CITR, does exist, but it's very, very unattractive. So that's one thing. Second is the CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act, which does exist in the United States, which requires banks to reinvest back into poor communities. Whilst I don't think that's completely applicable to a UK context, I think it's one of the things, Stella, that when I know your party is interested in this, that just around getting disclosure so that at the very least we know what isn't being done and the markets that are not being served so we can begin to do something about it. Stella. Um. I'd like to offer a reflection on the debate and the things you talked about. Because
0: I, I got involved in politics because I wanted to change the world. I got involved in the types of politics that I do because I believe that people should be the masters of markets, not the other way around. The things that we're talking about tonight, the things I'll go back to Parliament for us to vote on, the things that challenge me in my everyday working life as an MP for stove are about people, are about how do we get the potential out of the people, the people I represent, and that's why this stuff matters. And that goes to the point that Matthew's making and that Julian's making. Because actually, you're absolutely right, if the only thing we're doing is trying to stem the tide of a crisis that is coming, then the best that we're doing is mitigating the circumstances, we're not transforming them. What you've heard tonight, and why I'm such a big fan of Catherine, it's not just because I'm slightly scared that when she says we keep to time, we keep to time. (laughs) 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 And organisations like hers, like Fair Pensions, and the work she's done on the wage, show us what collectively we can do to transform the choices that are available to us. Now, I believe that also needs political will. That's why I'm involved in politics and campaigning well my local community. But above all, it is about that collective action. Absolutely, we can ask shareholders to think about the kind of world we want to be, the kind of world that does invest in communities like mine, not to ameliorate their problems, but to transform the potential that we get out of them. The reality is we cannot do that from Westminster. we can't even do it from Whitehall or from Town Halls. It has to be collectively. That means changing where the power bases lie in our communities, it means changing the power bases within politics, within economics, within finance too. But the point is when we do work together and the Living Wage Campaign absolutely proves it, it's in everybody's interests. This isn't out of the goodness of your heart. The Living Wage makes good economic sense. I would love us to move to a living city. Now that means asking difficult questions about the kind of schooling we need, the kind of housing we need, the kind of economy we want to become. But unless we start talking about these issues, unless we start equipping ourselves with the information and the confidence that we can do that, we'll never achieve it. This stuff is hard to do, but when I started campaigning on this in 2010, the Minister told me there wasn't a problem with legal loan sharking. Now I get called by companies saying, oh we're worried about investing in Wonga because we've heard they've got a bad reputation. So I know we're making headway on this. But the point is, if we work together, not only can we give shareholders the confidence that when they do the good things around the living wage, around the fantastic campaign you're running around trafficking as well, I have to say, that they will get support and for it. The point is we can also do things ourselves because actually the idea that 650 of us in Westminster are gonna solve all of this just doesn't cut the muscle. It's not my experience of how change happens. It happens because people in rooms like this go out and say, actually, we want to be different. And it's just your point about the Occupy movement. I have. I can understand the cry of pain that Occupy felt like to me, but one of the reasons I do politics as well as social campaigning is because the community that I represent needs answers. It doesn't just need anger. It needs people willing to work for those difficult, complicated solutions. It needs people like Catherine and, then, and Ben as well on the community finances, coming up with the models, coming up with the alternatives, just saying, well, let the market figure them all out. People can figure this stuff out if we work together to do it. If you want to help me for next week, Please email me. All I need you to do is contact your MP and tell them to support the amendment to the Financial Services Bill to give the Financial Conduct Authority the power to cap the charge of credit and start the ball rolling in the same way that the Living Wage Campaign started the ball rolling within, within the city and now it's spread worldwide. Thank you.
1: So there we have it. Um, Before we give everyone a a word of thanks, I just want to rattle off a couple of thoughts that just pop into my head. One is the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. Um, Not many people know that the Bank of England used to have responsibility for the efficient and effectiveness of the UK domestic financial services market for all consumers, and they ditched that, and the Treasury took the responsibility of that. The FSCA needs to have that responsibility, one. Two, without disclosure of where banks are gathering their deposits from and where they're lending or not lending, we won't make any headway because it will just be a ding-dong with the BBA. Uh, There are significant issues that without disclosure and transparency we won't get anywhere. Thirdly, for those that are interested in growing CDFIs and credit unions' local responses to local need, the new Localism Bill brought in some legislation which allows non-member deposits in credit union, which will be fully deposit protected by the normal insurance scheme, up to £85,000. So foundations, trusts, the Church of England, I say, you know would actually be able to put money into these initiatives just to give them a bit more welly and capital to do the work that they do and have it covered. So that's very cool. I think that for those of you that are more spiritually bent in the audience, I think that Edward talked about a whole bunch of Old and New Testament references. I think what we need to connect to this debate also is the Levitical tradition of gleaning go and read about it the 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 Hebrew people were told, those that were successful entrepreneurs and business people, not to go right into the corners of their fields and be so ruthlessly efficient that there wasn't something left for those who in their community couldn't make money for themselves. And We have banks in this country and large corporates who are becoming, even with their CSR budgets, so focused on commercial advantage that they've lost sight of that particular area, so that's just another idea. I'd throw out there if we had more time to discuss. And I think the final, you know, in terms of quotable quotes, Edward, I thought, had the best one tonight. The Church of England doesn't have customers, as it were. I thought thought that was very good. Um, uh, But I'd just like to finish with, um, with, and I think we've seen it a bit in in all of the panelists tonight, um, uh, and it's uh, using very old fashioned words from John Keats, who who said, no one can usurp the heights, a bit old fashioned, so no one can achieve anything, and I think in this particular area, for those of you who know the rest of the quote, here we go, but only those who, to whom the miseries of the world are misery and will not let them rest. And I think you've got some panelists here that I've known for a very long time who cannot rest until justice is done. And I think well done to St. Paul's Institute for uh, allowing us to air some of these issues, and Robert's pleased with the name check there, and to the Church (laughs) Investors Group. And I see that the previous chairman uh, and the current chairman are in the room. And thank you for, again, uh, coming up with this thing, uh, uh, because I think, as the lady said, a lot more communication about what can be done uh, by mission-related investors needs to
0: happen. Thank you very much for coming.